pivotal period of 33 making a decision to leave theater, there's an inertia that happens once you get into your late 30s and early 40s, and now you're in this career, and now you're like, well, do I go back to school for four years? Do I upend my life? Now you maybe have kids and a spouse and all those things where you go, well, now like the risks are higher if I go like, what if I hate this? All it takes is another, is a Ford to be in charge of the federal government and cut the guts out of the Canada Council. All of my friends will be unemployed. I don't know what they would do. That kind of uncertainty hangs over the heads of artists. Now, 10 years in, this is probably not true, but for the first five years of my career, I felt palpably that theater was more stressful than paramedicine. Financial stress, the constant judging that you get from your peers and the need to like perform all the time and the stress of living a freelance life. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bob Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Michael Cruz wants you to not be afraid of changing your career. We usually go to school for one thing, one field of study, one industry. Then we work hard to find jobs and build experience in that industry. We become experts. After 10 or 15 years, we become well-known for doing one thing very well. Maybe you've been in the same job or industry for that long, and you're totally fine. You're paid well, you enjoy the work, there's no reason to move on. After 10 years working as a lighting designer in the world of Canadian theater, Michael Cruz wasn't fine. Among other issues, he couldn't see himself ever reaching a comfortable retirement or financial independence, making the money he was making. So in his early 30s, Michael left his long career in the theater and decided he was going to pursue something completely different. He was going to become a paramedic. Michael joined me in the studio in Hamilton to share his personal finance story. Money as an object, I think, is the earliest memory. Okay. Fascinating as a kid. They're like different sizes, shapes, coins. Coinage is really fascinating when you're a kid. Yeah. Remember choking on a penny? That's probably the earliest thing. Okay, so the earliest... <laughs> <laughs> I was in no kindergarten. Good. I almost vomited because I choked up chewing on a penny or something when I was in kindergarten. But uh, no, the fascination with like the actual physical design yeah. of money, I think, is interesting. Well, because they make it like it's a piece yeah, of art, right? Absolutely. And I don't know if there's intent there. Oh, there's got to be. I think there's probably a whole design philosophy around around how money is is like the actual paper money and yeah. coinage. I don't know much about the history of coinage, but like that kind of. Uh, ego of stamping a coin in your, you know, in the leader's image and yes. things like that. The different colors, the different textures. I love the history of money. Have you done a, a, an episode I, on the history of I money? I have not, but I did take the history of business in university right. uh, from... Uh, 1200 to 1550 oh, was wow. the first like sem- uh, semester yeah, yeah, and yeah. then it went into modern business like yeah. 7-11s and stuff like that right. from Japan to America and how you know America ruined the 7-eleven right because they yeah. put slushies and <laughs> right. hot dogs in there yes and if you go to a 7-eleven in Japan it's not like that at all oh really you that's could get so like well, one time you could get windows 95 at uh, oh, you know, 7-eleven right. like that's how like nice. you get anything there right but yeah the history of, of business and money is really interesting mm-hmm. 
so we probably just carried it on. Like, cause who, who needs to see the queen on the back of our money? Well, like, now it's such so so rare. I remember when we got rid of the two dollar bill, uh, yeah. and everyone was sort of hoarding them because this was a, this was an object that that was so Canadian. Being next to our American partners who don't have a two dollar bill, yeah, uh, I remember people keeping them in their wallets and carrying them around. And this is like red. The fact that Canadian money is like different colors, yeah, especially was, in comparison to it the was US. odd. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Like for example, for the past three months, I've had two twenty dollar bills in my wallet. And I've never spent them because everything is now digital. Yeah, that's transactions. Right. It's backup um, money. It's backup. I don't even know why I still have it. Well, there's always a room for cash somewhere. Like, there's always a place, like yeah. the farmer's market, for example. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we have, we have one we can just walk to. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when it, when it comes to the, this physical money thing, I have asked people, like, is it important to still teach our kids mm. about money in this way? Because are they going to even have it? I'm a bit of a catastrophist, like, secretly, a secret catastrophist, <laughs> a secret prepper. <laughs> I feel like in 20 years, there's a moderately reasonable chance of us living like mad max okay so like you have a, a, a bunker or yeah that? so so i don't have a bunker but <laughs> there will be a bunker you in support the, the idea of I bunkers totally get being okay. a bunker is okay yes i don't know how realistic that will be in the future but i feel like as the years go on i think the utility of a bunker seems pretty reasonable like i can understand someone wanting a bunker so how does this apply to the, well, the supply of money because money is this kind of it's a philosophical object. It has meaning that is just contractual. It's a store of value, right? A sign, right? Yeah. Instead of me trading a chicken for a cow, exactly. I trade you a chicken for some coins or a gold bar or whatever, and then you trade that for a cow. So yeah, how does that apply then in the future when there's going to be no... Uh... Well, one of the reasons I went into... One of the reasons I went into medicine, that's a bit strong to say it, but <laughs> in the back of my head, I'm like, what profession in the future will always okay. be needed? Yeah. And you think healing, medicine... As long as human kind beings are... Around the, that sort of font of knowledge or approach to medicine is going to be useful no matter what milieu you're in and what you know cultural context you're in. Interesting. Uh, and if everything falls apart, <laughs> and th- like th- this is not an insignificant part of my thinking, and it's a bit conspiratorial, but like in the back of your head, you're like, you know, if this falls apart, I'm going to have a barterable skill that I can actually bring that does it, that doesn't require technology to support it necessarily. It's just knowledge based kind That's, of career that you yeah. could like. You know, going to the future. So. What's funny is I I would say that about accounting and personal finance. Yeah. However, if the economy is no longer, but I guess in that in that case, I would still be able to help people account for how many things are worth so many things, and and to record transactions between people, which would still be a thing. Which are one of the oldest forms one of, of the writing. Oldest things, right? Yeah, like absolutely, right. like whatever cuneiform B is all like. I sent 17 bushels of wheat to Persia mm-hmm. and they brought back this much oil and we have to make Okay, so I feel that, so. I feel better now that you yeah. say that. I'll, I think I'll be so. protected too. Yeah, yeah, Anybody yeah. who can organize numbers and and things and is good at trade and understands uh, you know transactions and yeah. stuff. Okay. So yeah. we're we're protected. I think we're good. All right. Okay. So you I don't know how you you got this penny in your mouth, but you choked on the penny. Because right, copper tastes to, good. It's like it's weird taste. Right? It does have a weird taste. Right? Yeah. Or so now it's not. So you picked it up. Do you remember about how old you would have been? Like what I would range? have been probably six or five. Six or five. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. you're choking on a penny. And, yeah. and But throughout, you're fascinated with 
the look of money and the feel. You want it? Did you want to collect coins? Do you remember that? Was yeah, my a... my father collected coins when I was okay, a kid. Yeah, uh, and I was also fascinated by his collection and the dates and the history that's attached to money. I never was really serious about. It. I collected stamps when I was a kid, but not in any serious way. No, you're not going to like build it up and then sell it. No, or, no, no, no. It was never an investment. No, it was just no, like a physical object, interest like in the physical object. Yeah, okay. Uh, and certainly, we had collections of uh, other uh, a collection of coins from other places. Yeah, uh, probably British pounds. What's a good way to learn about the world? Yeah, exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, these collection. are cultural objects, right? And, and, yeah. and, uh, and it tells a story about that community. I don't know if I had an overt understanding of that when I was a kid, but it certainly was part of that fascination. Do you think it's affected the way that you then treated money as you started to earn it? Do you remember the first time you earned any kind of money? I was thinking about this today. My, my early... Um, so I grew up in this working class household in a very, in a very kind of, I think, a very stable okay, like yeah. childhood. We were... Middle class lived in a suburban house, so there wasn't there wasn't a lot of money pressures when I was a kid. You that I had felt the basics covered, everything basics was covered. covered. We had a yeah. pool, like okay, we, we nice. Had, so, yeah. Both parents had a good working sure. class okay, yeah. union jobs okay. that were like. Um, what did they know, do if you don't mind? My uh, mother was a bus driver. Okay, yeah. Uh, and she drove for a school bus and then for city transit, so she had a good uh, yeah. city job. And then my dad uh, worked in a tire worked in uh, B.F. Goodrich in Kitchener, which was a tire factory okay. building tires, making tires. Uh, yeah. So he was part of the CAW and uh, okay. the United Rubber Workers, whatever the union was that, that that supported them. And so you know we had a bit of there was a bit of like uh, there was a strike at some point in my childhood that was very brief, but pretty solid economic stability when and i was a kid usually pensions in this case yeah I, pensions yeah. and and uh benefits like yeah. dental care and glasses and all that stuff so it was a good life right? but hard hard work for them hard right? work for them um back at a time when it paid off though right when uh, you can yeah. actually afford the house in the sure. suburbs and you know That's amenities right. like a pool which is like a seems like it was a bougie thing these days especially with like, room for a pool would be exactly so odd, yeah. odd right and growing up in kitchener we had a large lot and you know, it was on the outskirts and, you know, so it was a good life. And so we didn't really have, there wasn't, a, there wasn't sort of constant kind of hunger or need. So you didn't, you, know. you weren't pushed to, you got to get a job to get this. No, or, yeah. I really wasn't. The job, the push to get to work was sort of like your, for whatever aspirations you have. So I think that my earliest uh, stuff was like uh, umpiring, okay. uh, equipment management and like an arena, things like that, that were kind of. Not really high paying. They're all ba- little minimum wage, yeah, yeah. you know, and not consistent, and either. not consistent, yeah. uh, but a little bit of pocket change. And then I got my first job was working as a line cook. No, it was actually a dishwasher, okay, in a, a restaurant in Kitchener. And then I became a line cook after that. And that was when I was making sort of more consistent money. Like a pay, you get a paycheck every yeah, couple I get a of paycheck weeks. Every, yeah. Do you remember what you're doing with this money? I think I just. Like used it as spending money. Like it wasn't. I wasn't saving it. Yeah, I was so no savings. Uh, no, no you're savings. not thinking about that yet. No, nobody's saying like put it in a GIC, yeah, yeah. put it do a T bill, whatever it was. Like do some bonds, buy bonds. <laughs> None of that. Um, I was buying it. I was just buying things, frivolous objects. I bought a keyboard because uh, I was interested in music at that point, and yeah. that was my first like. And you saved up for that. I didn't save up for it. it was more of a credit thing. Oh, like, okay. So then I owed like money over. A period oh, of time. so yeah, dude. So you actually you bought it because you wanted it. Yeah. And it was a payment plan. Exactly. Like the store or whatever would have given you the I think option? it was store yeah, I think it was store credit. I forget who it was in Kitchener, but it was uh 
It was some sort of store plan. Okay, that's interesting. And you were able to get that probably with your parents, maybe. There must have. There, there must, must have been, been something there. There must have been. I don't remember. But, but I guess yeah. it's sort of like saving for it, and that you had to make regular payments. And if you missed a payment, yeah, what happened to the keyboard. Yeah, then there'd be an issue. Yeah, exactly. Away. Yeah, it goes away. Yeah, exactly. And you probably knew that. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, there was a certain amount of responsibility that, like, yeah. you. This is your now. This is your debt. You have to take care of it. You have to. So there was a so there an was early a loan. Thing. Yeah, and uh, you, you probably paid it off. Oh yeah, it went, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> However long it yeah. took, but but then I got a job. I got a job early on as a a stagehand. Okay, yeah, right. So Kitchener has a big venue called the Center in the Square down in Ontario, and it's a major touring venue f- for all the big acts that yeah. would. Uh, it's like a two thousand seat theater, so operas and musicals, and, all, and I had a real interest in theater, and so I got a job as a stagehand. So IATSE, IATSE. Wow. So yeah, you're working yeah. for the stagehand union. I was. 15 when I started. Wow. Making like serious coin yes. on a gig, right? Even to start. Even though yeah. and but even though you wouldn't have first crack at the at the hours or the or the gigs. Yeah, I was a permity. Yeah. It's you know the the seniority whole thing with the yeah, unions, yeah. right? But we would do like my first gig was the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels tour. Really? In 89 I did the Out in Toronto. So I had worked with in, I was doing some sta- I was some some theater work in Kitchener, we heard that there was this massive need for labor in Toronto. Cats was loading out. Phantom, something with Phantom, and the Rolling Stones were, were loading out. They needed like 150 bodies to do that. Sure. Is this, and is so this Skydome? This, is at, this was at the or exhibition up, oh, place at first. Oh, at the X, X yeah. okay. Skydome later for the second leg, but the first leg was on Labor Day, uh, like in 1989, Labor Day. Okay. So okay. D- triple time until midnight Overnight call, so it was double time after midnight. Like it was yeah, a so serious amount of coin. We can just talk about union uh, union uh, yeah. minimums a little bit. Yeah. So like you would have got a, you always get a minimum call, like right minimum four to hour four call, four hours, yeah. maybe maybe five hours depending on, depending on, on what it is. Yeah, and then after a certain time, you get paid more money. Yeah. And after a certain amount of hours, usually twelve yeah. or so, you get also paid more money. Yeah, exactly. So you're, and then you said holiday, and it was a Sunday, and it was okay. into Labor Day Monday. So all this to say is you were getting some mad money oh at fifteen. Oh my god, I made I made literally I made seven hundred dollars. Yeah. for that one call. Yeah, at the exhibition, I was like. Seven hundred bucks, fifteen years old. Seven hundred dollars. This is in nineteen eighty nine. There's no yeah. way I'm going back to work next week. <laughs> like, see you later. Or my back to high school. Dollar. Um, I st- I stayed in high school, obviously, but I but I uh, certainly booked but off why? days. Like I would like <laughs> yeah. sign like, "Hey, ma, I need a note because I'm gonna go do the opera down at the thing to do a day there." And I would do like two or three of those calls a month. You don't need you don't need high school diploma to get a job at oh IA. God, or, well, not no. then anyway. I don't not know then. what the it's an apprenticeship program. It's apprenticeship, okay. right? Yeah. So it's it, like I could have, and I think I'm sure I know people who either. Um, most of, I think most people finished high school because it wasn't a constant gig. Like you couldn't, you oh, probably yeah, couldn't true. make enough money full time as a permittee when you're sixteen. You're not or making seven hundred dollars a day every day. No, no, no. No, it's that's no. A, that was a one off. Yeah, and then you might have some cheaper days, uh, but maybe half of that. Sure, or but a third, yeah, or, or yeah, or a third. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not consistent. Not consistent. Whenever there's, there's got to be an event. It's got to be an event, and there's got to be enough people. They need that th- they have to hire from the permit list, which is not the member list. Yes, right. Because I was a permittee, so I would pay them for the pleasure of of, of working on the. 
day was like six or seven percent. And this, uh, this happens in a lot of unions, it's yeah. seniority, and yeah. there's a whole lot of different ways to get. And once you're in, you're in, you're oh, good, yeah. you're golden. golden. Yeah. So then, what did you do with this money? Buying stuff, going up with my friends. Now I had money actually, I, and I didn't have to work. The, the key was I was probably not making, except for those rare, rare things like that or the auto show or something. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't making more money than my friends, but I would only work a few times a month. Yeah. I didn't have a part-time job where I was doing 15 hours a week. Good point. Or 20 hours a week. So you had more time doing... to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, just time to be a teenager. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's let's fast forward then. End of your teens, you're going to school. You decide you want to go to school somewhere? Yeah, it was theater school. So it was Ryerson Theater School did, at Ryerson did University. Did IATSE affect the, the choice of theater school? I, or? I was, I was, oh, um, <laughs> or, or probably did, did, no. Or did your interest in theater affect the It was my the interest union, in theater. Course, yeah, yeah, it was my interest. In, and I was interested in being a designer. And the, okay, yeah. And IA doesn't represent designers no. in Canada. So this is going to be a this is now a college you know program that I was okay, going to so become you, a designer at Ryerson Theater School Ryerson yeah. has a like a theater school they, within yeah now it's called the Ryerson School of Performance which doesn't talk about technical theater like performance is not necessarily technical theater or design uh, so yeah so then it was Ryerson Theater School so how did you pay for that god I have no idea oh, so really back, so this is before the big tuition hikes from Harris okay so this is 1991 to 94 Harris had just taken over like 92 or something right so it was, Mike Harris was premier of Ontario yeah Mike yeah. Harris and he hadn't there weren't any big university cuts at the beginning. They started to creep up, though. So my tuition, that was like $2,100, $1,900, I think, for tuition for the two semesters. Okay. And I got OSAP. Okay. And that paid for that. I had a little bit of help from my parents, but they, again, for living costs, yeah. like just like food and things like yeah. that. There wasn't a lot of other. I would. I had to pull. Uh, I don't know how I got through my first university. I think my tax <laughs> that year was. I think my total income was eight thousand dollars. Yeah, you remember that? I remember that. I think it was. Lo- it was like sub ten, and this included tuition and uh, accommodations. Yeah, I think that OSAT paid for accommodations and tuition. I think there was a month enough got there. Enough. Yeah, yeah, and then I had to fill in the rest. Okay. You were working IA sometimes? Or? I did. I, I did a big, the big phantom tour that pulled in a bunch of money for a week. Probably finished it. Around that year, I was when I stopped and I started doing other gigs okay, okay. as a hand gotcha. and, and as a designer. There was some money from my folks. It was about a couple grand probably to fill in that. So yeah. there's like three or $4,000 from OSAP. Most of it was a grant. Then there was maybe a couple grand from my folks. And then the rest of it was like just me doing random gigs. And then being exceedingly frugal. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. You're probably a really frugal yeah. liver. Uh, that's not a word. <laughs> frugal lifestyle? Yes. You, had, you led a frugal lifestyle. Exactly, yeah. Because I, I couldn't afford anything else. I mean, that was sort of set me up for the rest of the next 10 years. Okay, so that, that like did that. influence. So you got, went to your sort of school of frugal hard knocks. Yeah. Um, by experiencing it, because what what if you needed money, could you go back to your parents? I could. I think I did that a couple times, but not a lot. Um, and I wasn't really borrowing money from anybody at that time. Mm. Um, they would sort of fill in. I think if I had an emergency, they probably would have. But I managed to sort of scrape together enough for rent and everything else. I actually got into a huge problem because I had a roommate in year two who left early oh, okay, and I yeah. was saddled with this like $800 a month apartment and I oh, had wow. no roommate. And so I got, an, I almost got uh, evicted. And then I, a friend of mine, Brad Treneman, who's a lighting designer, I just want to say his name out loud because he saved my bacon because yeah. he was working at Stage West in Mississauga okay. as a board op, as a lighting board operator. And he said, hey, there's a show in, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm going to wherever to do another thing. And uh, they need someone to, 
operate the board. I'm like, well, this is something I can, this is part of my skill set. I know I'm in second year university or theater school, but I've already done a bunch of this. You did this in high school. I've done this in high school. I did the IA so work. you're building up your, your theater skills this is, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah or uh, lighting, operation. Yeah, operation, yeah. yeah. And so I said, well, I can do that. So then I took on an eight-show-a-week gig at Stage West doing Grease. And I was getting so sound paid. and lights, or, uh, just, or lights? Lighting, just, just lighting, just lighting. Yeah, okay. just had electrician gig. So gotcha. I was doing running the show, and I was doing maintenance and little side gigs and stuff there. Uh, but eight shows a week that, and going wow. full time at oh. university. Okay. Just sort of, and then, and I was making maybe four hundred, five hundred dollars a week, okay. and I managed to pay off this debt that I had from this house thing, and it carried me into the summer, and then everything was going to be okay. So let's talk about that. And you had to go into debt to pay your rent. I was basically just, I just owed my landlord money. Okay, so you just went to, he, the, I just went your landlord, rears. he or she, yeah. allowed you to go into your rears. Okay. Yeah, only for a few months. It was like three or four months. I had a couple spotty roommates, but I was about four months behind in rent. How was that conversation? Oh, God. Well, we didn't have a conversation. No, I was. No it was avoidance. Oh, I see. It was like, <laughs> you will owe us this, like I was just not paying my rent. And then, you know... We're going to evict you unless you pay your rent. By luck, I got this gig. I was like, hey, by the way, I've got my rent for this. Like, Let me just pay off for the next I month. I was just about to say, uh, see, everyone, if you just have a conversation with your landlord, they might understand. But no, and because uh, I was a teenager and didn't uh, like or uh, like 21 years old, didn't know how to have a conversation with but anybody. That's how a lot of people get into things like payday loans, because right. yeah. they can't make their rent. They don't want to talk to their landlord, yeah. but they know they're going to get evicted on you know day two. If they don't pay, and so they go get one of those, and then they're in the cycle. Oh, yeah, exactly. But uh, there probably wasn't even payday loans in the 90s, if I remember. There, I think that they were probably around. I, I didn't have access to them as no, a student. I not as easy didn't. to get to It was probably a few today years. Yeah. on every street corner. God, I, I don't imagine. If I would have been in deep crap... If that had happened when I was, if they were around when I was. What about was, credit cards? You didn't have any credit no, cards? No, uh, no. I had a, I, if I did have a credit card, I had a very low limit. Yeah. I had a student credit card, maybe with $500. I don't think I got a credit card until at least third year or the beginning of my, or after I exited. Sounds like you avoided, you like, you skipped over a bunch of problems that you could have had. Yeah, no line of credit. Yeah. No, like I was basically just, money that I was making was coming in and going out, and there was no credit involved. Now, I wonder, is this because your parents were not debt people? Or did they ta- ever talk to you about debt? We never had the conversation. And uh, through a bunch of personal things, my family was going through a lot of flux. Uh, they got a divorce when I was in early high school. So okay, okay. we weren't, I was basically like on my own. Yeah. Uh, with a little bit of support from them, um, but not, but I was basically independent. I left home at 18 and I was basically independent. But that's when people discover credit cards because of course yeah. now 18 you can get them. Yeah. And then people are throwing them at you at school. Maybe they weren't so much at, uh, at Ryerson, I don't know. Uh, but it, it was certainly there for offering, but I never really. You uh, kind of uh, missed a big problem that a lot of people run into. Yeah. It's just like, especially with the the rent thing. Yeah, that would have been an ideal time for oh, you yeah. to do cash advances and things like that. Totally, but you didn't even have those uh, tools. No, I was so lucky. I think in retrospect, yeah, so lucky not to get into that, dig in that hole, and lucky that I had this opportunity to to do this this now full time gig where yeah. they're paying me real money that I could pay off my, my debts. Okay, so you're doing that. Mm-hmm. You're able to get through school. Somehow. Somehow. And you the, the grease thing didn't last uh, for that long? I had... Just to pay off the rent and then get back on your feet. I had paid my tuition for the year. This was the good thing. Okay. Paid my tuition for the wow. year. And then I had... Because um, tuition was like 
two thousand bucks. Uh, yeah, but it wasn't, for, that could still you know, be a lot to to pull together because yeah. it's relative to whatever money you might be making. Yeah, I had a and good you had gig. your rent and uh, yeah. Well, also Sage West was like we had a restaurant. Not oh. a restaurant. We had an employee buffet, basically. Okay. So food was fine. For oh, you summer. lucked out there. Yeah, it was a good gig. It was yeah. a good gig for a student. Oh my god, it was a and this is gig. in the wheelhouse of what you want to do. And I want to do in it. the future. Yeah, this is not exactly what you wanted to do, or yeah, because I want to do design. That's right. Yeah, yeah, so I didn't want to be an operator necessarily, but 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 that was certainly a big part of my revenue was was backing up my design work with doing that kind of. Uh, with doing stagehand work and doing technician, uh, being a, an electrician basically, and sometimes a sound guy, uh, to sort of back up the design work. That's how I sort of managed to pay for everything. Yeah. Okay. And then I, and then somehow in, in the middle of third year, I had a reasonable apartment. Now that I was living in, I was living in a, a room in a in a in a house in the East End. So there was about four to six months of not working full time doing Stage West, maybe doing some occasional uh, like non union gigs around the city. But I paid off enough of the tuition that I could, I could live for the rest of the year and be okay. Okay. And then I got a job at my first actual real after school, after the school's finished, first professional gig. Okay. And, uh, and then it was off to the races. I was freelancing. Okay. So throughout the, uh, this whole time, you're not thinking about saving money no. or you know, saving for the future or, or building. You're just, you're surviving. I'm surviving. This is what theater, this is what a lot of theater in their 20s, when people work in their 20s in theater, this is what it is. You're just, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my, I didn't have a car payment, yeah. but now, you know, car payments and travel. So and personal like finance sort of doesn't exist as a topic to you, really. Other than the debt load I had from OSAP, this is yeah. the only kind of debt that I had was yeah, that no, I had Yeah, you're this, having to face that now. Yeah. It was my only anxiety was about how to pay off this $2,000 loan that I yeah. had from OSAP. And it doesn't seem like a lot of money like in retrospect, but back then it was like... Well, you got to find some extra money. God, like I need an extra 100 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month right? to pay this off. And if you do that, it's like two years if, if they're still calculating interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, forget how OSAP works. OSAP that. was high back because the, the loans back in the early 90s were like 10 or 12% uh, or maybe 13% uh, loan. So it was, it was wow. a, it kind of because of this, this is how they financed That's it. That's terrible. Interest rates were high back then. And <laughs> yeah, I know. But back then, it was the the interest rates were high, and so your loan kind of went on, and I wasn't paying a large amount in months. So it was like three or four years. In so fact, three I, or four years. Yeah. I didn't pay it off. Ninety four to ninety seven. I it went into arrears near the end. Okay, it ended up going into arrears because you weren't making the payments. I wasn't making. I I had sort of fallen off the payments and avoided it, and then I got went to collection. But it was a, such. A, I had I had paid off about. Like it was like five hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, yeah. and then that went to collection. That's what happens, though. Like that's exactly, and then you're kind of messed because you've no. got now you've got this collection thing on your record. So you're getting calls from co- collections. Yeah, you're avoiding those. Yeah, I'm avoiding those. Yeah, exactly. Did you end up settling it? I did end up settling it because then I got a job at state at uh, Shaw Festival in '97. Okay, in Niagara. In Niagara on the Lake. Niagara on the Lake. I was able to pay off the last little bit. That I had that I had gone to collection, so that got cleared. Did it affect your credit rating? Do you know? It did. I had issues over the next couple years. Okay. I can't remember specifically, but I know it did affect my credit rating. It certainly yeah. did affect my credit rating, and it affected like like my ability to get credit, which you needed in the future. Spoiler alert. Actually, it uh, it did affect my ability to get credit for. I had to get a cosign. For a loan to go back to school to become a paramedic. Okay. Uh, because this is a definite spoiler. This is a yeah. whole different. Uh, and then everything turned part around. Of your life. Yeah, exactly. So that uh, it did affect. I had to get a co-signer to get a loan, a uh, student. Uh, what's that? What's called a uh, line of credit to go yeah, back to from school from a, ba- a bank or yeah. whatever. Because yeah. no OSAP. 
No, because this was in the U.S. Because oh, I went to school down you in went Iowa. To school down in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's a, a bit of a gap to fill in here. Then. Yeah. So how much longer are you working in in theater? I did about ten years total. It was like twenty. Yeah, it was like 1994. I left Ryerson. I graduated in '97. I had to get an extra credit or whatever. Sure. It's like a classic Ryerson story. <laughs> you go to the Ryerson for three or four years, three years, and then you don't get, you don't graduate, and you end up working as a professional artist because no one cares what you. No did one cares. No one looks at that stuff, right? No one cares. And then I worked for about ten years. 2004 was when I went. Uh, when I decided mm, I should do something else, 2005 I started back uh, in school. Okay, so a- any so about ten years, any relevant uh, financial stuff between in that ten years? Or are you just basically coasting? I'm coasting, like like no. Uh, I paid off the OSAP. Shaw was good. I was actually making pretty good, okay money. But it, where was it going? Uh, it was just paying. It was just paying my debts, or, not debts, paying your uh, life. my life, uh, and with no serious. I had maybe a bit of. Uh, did I have any savings? I had a bit of an RSP, maybe. Do you feel like you were overspending in some way? Do you think they're, in hindsight, Not of course, 2020, uh, right? Certainly, if I wasn't saving it, then, like, if you if, if the criteria is you have to have 10 or 15% put in savings, and I wasn't First, doing that. Uh, yeah. Before you spend anything. Before you spend then I was not doing that. Certainly, as an artist, you're, you're playing this tax game. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you want to write off everything you can. To sort of, so you're freelance. Yeah, yeah. So you're freelancing, right? So my my yearly incomes, I would, uh, you know, as a as a lighting designer, you make a pretty good, you make a, pr- it's a pretty good deal as on the spectrum of like um, income in Relative. in theater, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, you know, sixty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars was sure. kind of like uh, the gross amount I was making yearly, which is a pretty good income for freelancer in theater. Yeah, for people making far less, and I, that was all from my theater income. Sure, there was no sure. supplement. Yeah. Um, but you're trying to like maximize that tax wise and write everything you can off, and so your 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 net income ends up being thirteen thousand dollars a year because you're buying things, you're spending on things you need for it's, work. Yeah, it's mostly just rent. Well, I'm writing off. There's a whole cultural stuff that I'm writing off as well: movies, books, uh, lots of travel, food. If it's like you play this little game of like. How now we your the food write offs now are a bit less than they were in the past, but you could write off half your food. Yeah, I go out with Frank. Frank is my buddy who runs X Theater X. That theater. Yeah, you might have trouble in an audit today, but maybe it wasn't so yeah. uh, hard. Uh, but how can you write off rent? What are you renting? I'm I'm now renting off uh, renting off a portion of my uh, house. Okay, uh, so the ho- an office. Uh, yeah, right? so home uh, home use. Yeah, expense. exactly. Uh, so that's being written off. Okay, what else is because being you're off? doing all of your. So yeah, what what kind of stuff you're doing? Contract. Design, I'm doing lighting design mostly. Okay, um, and some and, and a lot of uh, maybe some independent tech work as well. And would you and say uh, a good lighting designer is barely noticed? Is that what's the criteria? Like yeah, if you do if you it well, don't get, yeah, then no one notices it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it feels underappreciated to me. Yeah, I, I think design's always been underappreciated. I think that they uh, it's more appreciated now in the last ten fifteen years. Critics certainly recognize it now as sure. a as a as a as a discipline that's more important and i think that it's especially to these days it's an essential element that is the difference between you know going to the movies now there's obviously designers in movies and television but theater live theater has a very specific aesthetic i think the people are recognizing it so it's an essential element that differentiates theater from other forms of art yeah so there wasn't a lot of recognition back then but but i mean there was enough you're getting good work you're getting getting good work i'm working across the country i'm starting to like get into the cycle of all the regional theaters in canada and just just on the cusp of being quote-unquote a-list sure uh, before i leave 
And uh, then I keep uh, spoiling things, but uh, when did the podcast start? Later? Oh, this was a much later thing. This okay. was in the last so five you, years. The podcast you picked up later. Yeah. It wasn't even in your mind. Okay. No, no, no. So you had a lot of experience, but you decide. I decide that one day I want to I want to be able to retire, or I at least want to have the option. Okay. So this comes into your mind. This now. is a monetary decision. Like, okay. part, of, part of it okay. is, yeah, part of it is interest. Like you, like I got pretty sure. good at my well, job. You and I'm have like, some interest. Now I think I need to do something else because yeah. <laughs> I know how to do this and I want something fresh. Yeah, absolutely. That's like that's the first motivator. The second motivator is how is this ever sustainable? I was looking at people who are ten years older than me, whose marriages had fallen apart, yeah. like literally, who were working this kind of grueling regional schedule where they'd be at home for a few months of the year. And the rest of the year was traveling. I mean, that's a glamorous thing to do in your twenties. You get to see Canada. You get to see. You have sure. a network of friends. Yeah. I still have a network of friends across the country these days. Uh, but you also go, God, I don't own a house. I can't. I can't quite make a car payment. You know, really? so I, they just didn't pay well. No, like you, you really can't. Like, and I don't know how people live these days. But even then, 15, 20 years ago, the people who were buying houses are people who had either made smart money decisions which i was not making in the early 20s and we're saving some money had family money mm. it's a, the unwritten kind of root law and theater is that if you've got family money you've got a bit of wiggle room to be an artist because you don't have to worry about interesting right so um people who were quote born with a silver spoon in their mouth were able to have a much more reasonable artistic career because they didn't have to worry about buying a house they had real estate they had been left money that could pay for like the big chunks of of that, and then they wouldn't have to worry about it. So there was and a lot of privilege then yeah. in the in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, you came from a a healthy family, happy, happy, economically you know, totally stable, stable, but, but yeah, no, not, there's, there's no money being passed nothing down. to be passed. Yeah. yeah, nothing like you know, don't worry about it, just do your theater thing. Yeah, <laughs> and working largely independently. Like I didn't have a lot of support financially. Uh, so you didn't see you, you could literally see your future in other people and you couldn't see yourself you're going to work till you till you die till you die and and or worse fall out of favor oh wow as an artist right because so, yeah because you're having to prove yourself all the time yeah and you've got your bag of what by the pressure time, by the time you're in your early late 30s you've got your bag of tricks you've got the thing that you do as a designer and uh, and if you've been lucky, you've you've generated a cadre of directors who want to work with you yeah. all the time. And if you're not lucky, which is a lot of people, you don't have that. And then you're like, what do I do? Do I find a house gig someplace? Do I move into a different part of theater to become administration? They have a much better, more stable income. Administrators get paid probably the best. Really? In theater. Okay. Unless you're like unless you're an A list star. Like unless yeah, you're an actor yeah, star. Yeah, but most there, people yeah. aren't. Most people are working talent, journeyman actors. Goes talent, then administration. Yeah. And then talent even then even then even then unless you're doing more than four or five shows a year, you're sure. not making as much you're all everyone has a part time job waiting tables or, or, or doing yeah. events or something. The administrators have you know, they're not getting paid hundred they're not getting paid six figures unless you're at a big Stratford Shaw. They're getting paid, you know, Fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, maybe seventy if you're at a bigger, more established place. Sometimes it's thirty-five to fifty if it's you know uh, if it's a smaller theater, but it's guaranteed income. It's employment income. It looks better on a bank record in your credit because it's every you're getting paid every week, and yeah. it's a long-term gig. 
You don't have to worry about next year's thing if you're you know, as long as you're a competent administrator. You know, I used to work in the touring business, yeah. right? In, in global touring. So you know, the main thing for that is you're gone. You don't have the roots. Exactly. And you can only do it for so long. Oh yeah. And some people burn out. Some people th- it becomes their life. Yeah. And it's not easy. And people glamorize yeah. the, it, it, of course, right? I don't know. Doing like 60 dates in 70 days. Well, and you're on a bus, dumb. right? And you're on a bus. Yeah. Your travel day is your day off. Well, you're on a bus for 10 hours, and then you get to the place, and you have some dinner, and you go to bed, and you got to get up at 6 o'clock to do the install the next day. Like, that's not a life. I got to know Russia's accountant, yeah. uh, Liam, and uh, he he's known them from the beginning, mm-hmm. and he would fly on the plane yeah, with them. Sure, yeah, sure. So if you have a gig like that, then you know that's it's not so bad right? yeah. like like Paul McCartney flies home oh. or Madonna flies home every night whatever right you yeah. can do that yeah. but not like not even close to a little bit of people out there are doing that it's just the tiniest fraction i just happen to work in that part yeah, of the sure. business yeah. so i know that part of it but i also know people who work you know in the comedy uh, mm-hmm. uh, thing and on in in other small theater stuff right and and just smaller acts acts that nobody's yeah. maybe even heard of or they're indie or they're just starting and they got to go on tours too and that's like um what did my drummer call it a taxi tour oh yeah where you put your uh, yeah put your stuff in a taxi from the airport and meets you at the gate yeah or a <laughs> van or something even even worse if you're doing a school tour or something in a van going all over ontario these don't happen too much anymore but um, so being an artist is hard, and yeah. it's it's rewarding, but not necessarily monetarily. Once you get to the, your thirties, you're like, I should do something else. In fact, when I said that, when I was gonna, when I when I was I was talking to a director out in the East Coast that I was working in when I was 33, and uh, I said I'm gonna go do something else. I'm gonna become a paramedic. And he said, uh, How old are you? I said, Oh, I'm 33. He's like, Yep, that's the year. <laughs> that's the year. People either decide I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. Wow. And commit, yeah. or they go get me the hell out of here. I got to do something else because this is there's a deficit. Like for example, and we used to talk about this as well. Like if we had gone to business school, yeah, four years out it with an MBA, four years in you're doing pretty good, right? You're making Usually. a good salary, yeah. right? Yeah. If you if something unless something's gone wrong, but like if, let's say we were all, like we were t- we were assuming we're all successful because we're we're all successful artists. Yeah. We were working a lot. We yeah. were doing a lot of work. Like it sounds like you were we right were, there. Exactly, we were successful. So comparing ourselves to somebody who had an MBA or someone who was in engineering or that in tech, level of success. Yeah, they'd be have they'd have a house, they'd have a car too, they'd have a family, a couple of kids, they have a pension, they have like yeah, they're getting promotions, promotions. Uh, they're probably getting raises at least with inflation, exactly. which you may or may not be getting depending no, it's on the deflation rates. It's now. really yeah. it would get lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, and yeah. so that's I guess that's the lesson for for freelancing mm-hmm. in general is you know. You were. It sounded like it was more of a regulated, like rates were in, in the in the business that you were in, as opposed to like I do this service and I can charge whatever I want because I have value. Yeah. You had comparison against other people, and you feel like you were limited in terms of how much you could charge. Oh yeah. Well, we're we're basically limited by the grants. Okay. okay. And now what's it. happening? Sure. In fact, in the so last the money itself. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So what's or what's happening in the last? Well, now thing? in the last. So there are people, and this is a huge problem in theater in Canada right now especially with, with design, is that because we have no union, we have an association called the Associated Designers of Canada, Yeah, uh, but it's not a closed shop. Um, you don't have to belong to the association to work. And okay. there's a standardized contract, but and there are minimum fees that is, have been negotiated, but they're minimums. They're not like 
what everyone should be making. Okay. So and what's happening now great. is yeah. people are getting hired at a same rate that they were 15, 20 years ago, like the same rate what? or less. No. Yeah, because we're the only part of the business that has not been able to um, come up with a standardized closed shop union contract. And so who are you going to cut? Well, you're not going to cut the administrator because that's a job you can point out and go, well, you work here 40 hours a week. Yeah. You've got set number of hours, and when you work that out, well, you should be paid like $40,000, $50,000 a year or more. But with this, with a, for a contract that I can't really tally up a number of hours, and because no one else is there saying, no, we will not yeah. work for less than this, then you get paid 20 30% less. It certainly has not gone up. And like you said, it's the funding that it's really funding. dictates this. It's not like yeah. you're going to do shows in somebody's uh, salon uh, who has a mansion, mm-hmm. right? Because then exactly. you could dictate whatever you want. Yeah. This is like the money comes for the production. Yeah. So you have to move on. And paramedic interested you? Yeah. It was an interesting career, and I liked the science about it, and I liked uh, I liked the medicine portion of it. And I had friends that had been successful. I had friends in theater who had gone back and become paramedics. It seemed like a job I wanted to do. It was it, like th- th- there were three things. One was interesting. Two, it was something I could do. Um, it was something that paid well, like the payoff was going to be good, yeah. and it was only two years. Okay, I didn't have to go to school. I had friends that had been a lawyer. I'm like, oh, I should go be a lawyer. I could probably write the LSAT and get in. And I was like, well, four years of law school, what if I hate it? And then articling and, and the articling. summer student articling, all oh the pro- the process before you actually get to do what you want. Yeah, and then but then in the end, if I go, God, I hate this, and then you're, I'm five years yeah. and six years and like massively in debt so i could go back to school for two years okay and get a and get a high-paying job um what i consider a high-paying job medics may not think that but it's a high-paying job sure. entrance you, you're making 40 bucks an hour at the beginning of your career yeah 38 an hour uh some places it's less but it's around 35 to 37 i think is the entrance uh, you know on average and uh, and you get good benefits and there's a pension and yeah. it's guaranteed and everyone needs medics um, so it was a good job. And so, um, that's what I thought I should do. And I went down to the U S and retrained and came back and got a job and done. So you're now working as a paramedic. Yeah. Now high stress though. Now 10 years in, this is probably not true, but for the first five years of my career, I felt palpably that theater was more stressful <laughs> than paramedicine. Wow. So, like financial stress. Wow. First of all, yeah. the constant judging that you get from your peers and the need to like completely perform all the time. Wow. And the stress of living a freelance life. Sure. Right? Uncertainty. The uncertainty in theater and working as a freelancer is just like, is unbearable. You get used to it. You don't see it when you're in the job. Sure. Because you're like, man, I made my That's rent. That's what you know. Yeah. I made my rent next month. That's good enough. I'm a success. But you tasted the paramedic life, yeah. and you're like, holy crap, Like, what was I doing? So you're able yeah. to pay for everything you're living. Yeah. So now and can... are, now you, you already had in mind, I want to save for retirement, but you got to pay back your student loan. So student loan got paid off in a few years. Okay. I actually took out a, I got a line of credit, and I got a, I got a loan from a, a good friend of mine as well to sort of pad out the rest of it. Okay. And, and that worked out, and I paid off the loan. And to from my folks, actually, it wasn't loan for my folks. They had co-signed it, so they were like a bit anxious about me paying it off. So I paid that off, no problem, and I paid the loan off from my friend. And then I I got that uh, in the first probably five years, uh, and felt good. And then went back to school <laughs> for yeah. more debt. Okay, so <laughs> wait, like, wait, more paramedic school? More, I got my undergrad. Oh, I so see. So to to get to to advance, so I had gotten my uh, paramedic uh, diploma. I actually it was a 
a certification in the U.S. and then got found equivalent up here. So it wasn't, uh, it was like equivalent to like a, a an associate's degree maybe. It was like a, not even, it was a vocational program down there. So it was a one-year program that got seen as equivalent up here. Um, and then... Got your foot in the door. I got my foot in the door. I got hired. You got hired. Money. You're making money. Pay down your debts. But the next thing to do, like if I was going to move up to management or do anything else, I had to get my undergrad. Okay. So then I went back to school and got an undergrad at U of T. So this is more time. debt. So how did you pay down the first debt? Like just frugality? I had was making enough. I was making enough money that I could pay that off every month. That's fantastic. And uh, and then live a, a you know a pretty reasonable life, but uh, more more or less the same lifestyle as working as working as living before. Okay. Uh, now with more security, and um and Benefits. saving a bit of money, and you know a little RSP, and I have a pension that I'm putting away every yes. year like, that you have to put away. Okay. Yeah. Uh, through Omer's. So some forced savings. So yeah. it's Omer's. Yeah. yeah, which is a. Pretty good pension. So yeah, it's a good pension. Like I've got, and I still have it. Yeah, because I still work part time. So that that went really well, and I paid that off, and then I went into a bit of debt with, uh, uh, not official debt, like just like I had a line of credit that was a personal line of credit that I paid for, basically paid for my uh, my undergrad. So you need a, a four year bachelor degree? Yeah, uh, I did a four year degree at U of T. I did a, a little little bit at Athabasca to sort of keep my keep going to school, and got like a first year science from them. I went. I got some extra training from work. Became an advanced care paramedic, and that was a couple. Years, that was paid for by work. That's about that was about two hundred thousand dollar investment they made in my career. Wow, at really? Work. Yeah, because you're pulled off the road, getting full salary for about a year. They have to be backfilled by somebody else. Really? So they pay you, and they pay someone else to do your job, and then they pay for your schooling. Now, how how do you qualify for that? Uh, it's a it's a competitive uh, application you process. Audi- at work. I say audition. Audition. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, you have to do it. But I mean, there's a there's a there's. I'm a in the theater mode. Yeah, here. exactly. There's a written component. There's a practical component you have to do, and then you get picked by seniority after that. So you really wanted this, and yeah. you you went out and you, and you got it. Yeah, and that took a little pause, and then I, then after that, I had my first year science. At Athabasca, I had, a, I had an equivalent of a, of a. Well, it didn't really matter that much. I had my undergrad, my original theater training, uh, which was like basically an associate's degree at uh, Ryerson, and uh, did a little couple high school things, and then got into U of T to do my undergrad part time yeah. there. And what, what did you get? Uh, uh, my, I have a bachelor of science in uh, uh, human physiology and uh, history and philosophy of science as a double major. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so now th- this probably is what they use to for your med school application. Yes. Thank God they didn't use Ryerson. Ryerson <laughs> was a terrible. They made this mistake because I went to Ryerson before it was a university, so it was a college program. But now it's a university, so and you have to put all of your any mark you've ever gotten, you have to put in the OMSAS, the medical school uh, application process. And they included my Ryerson marks in the initial GPA calculation really? because it's a university now. So they thought, oh, it's a university degree. But I went there before it was a university yeah. degree, so I had to call them and was like, guys, okay. you cannot use my Ryerson <laughs> marks because I was a terrible student. And uh, like and we, a, just a low GPA, and, and we should note that it doesn't matter that it wasn't a, a you know health or science. They they no. don't look at that. They look at GPA. GPA call anything. It was a university credit that you took. They they put that to, to, towards you. And so if you know you're going to go to med school, yeah, you're probably going to try to build your GPA yeah. high by taking whatever you need to take that you can excel at. Exactly. But we don't all have that option, especially when marks were not the thing when I was in theater. That's it, it was right? about your artistic practice, uh, and so uh, you know there were several classes that I got like 
terrible, like a D. I just passed. Yeah, you just right? get through. And it wasn't about you get GPA. your diploma, you yeah. get your degree, and that's you walk yeah, out the door. Exactly. Nobody really talks like uh, you know. I have a, you see it right there. I have a degree. Yeah. From Western, and I, nobody knows what marks I got. No. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It never mattered no. in my 15 years working in corporations. Yeah. But for some things, it does. So let's talk about the decision to go to med school. So you have this advanced, you're an advanced care paramedic. Yeah. It sounds like you're pretty set up. It's a great gig. Dude. Money-wise, I'm sure, too, now. It's a good money. So yeah, it's good money. Is it just Omer's you're focusing on? Or are you building emergency funds? Or what are you doing? Are you, are you <laughs> See, here's, here's the thing. So I, uh, I, am, uh, I have no dependents, unmarried, unpartnered. So I was just me. Yeah. And man, after working 10 years in theater as a freelancer and then finally having a job that you could rely on that yeah. paid you well, that was taking care of a pension that I didn't have to think about. You felt safe. I felt safe. And I felt like I gave myself liberty to to go into a little spent. bit of debt for school. Yeah. Uh, well, and that, my, that's great investment. Yeah, yeah, and my debt at the end of the, like my my total debt at the end of the ten years I was working as a paramedic was basically just how much it cost to go to school. Yeah, so I managed the rest of the debt. Amazing. And worried about it a little bit. Had some credit card debt. Carried some credit card debt. Carried some debt. But my total debt was like, you know, how, the what the the cost of the degree was. And so, as will become important later, not a student line of credit, just a personal line of credit. Mm. But I did okay. I spent, you know, I was having a fun life. Uh, I didn't buy any real estate um, because I wanted to live in downtown Toronto. That was a lifestyle choice. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. Early on, I thought, oh, I should probably make some real estate investments. I'd gotten a financial advisor and started putting some money away. Yeah, you did. In a in an RSP, like I had, I had made a serious commitment to that. Yeah. Uh, to just put mutual at least, funds? It was or? just mutual funds, yeah. yeah. Uh, with the idea that I should be putting more money away to do something with, probably an education fund, Maybe first-time home buyers, okay, something like that. Okay, I had uh, in the in my distant past, I had bought a house with a partner oh. that I had married in the late nineties, and you uh, skipped over that. Yeah, that was a whole other, like <laughs> I was a it wasn't like it was a working artist. I wasn't he he paid for most of the house. He was a yeah. nurse. No fallout from that. We had sold the house. We got divorced or split up, and and we had sold the house, and it was not. Well, it doesn't sound like you made any kind of money off of that. Uh, we made like ten grand or something off of it, but that just. But it was like went. It was a financial kind of byway or yeah. cul de sac. Like it just sort of it just happened, ha- it, it, but it didn't affect didn't the affect. rest of your life. No. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, situation where. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I use the money from this house to buy this house. And yeah. then and then the house after house after house. And now, you know, and it all grew. Not my gig. No. Yeah. So now, though, you're in a position where you have investments. You got your omers. Yeah. You're not buying, which means you have more money to yeah. invest and save. And you feel safe. Yeah. But. But I did well in undergrad. Yeah. And. Uh, and again, because I didn't, had nobody else, I'm only thinking of myself at this point. Sure. Because I have nobody else to take care of. Yeah. Uh, which is an advantage and a privilege uh, in some respects. Yeah, interesting right? to think of it. You know, we don't, uh, we don't think of that as a privilege, but having options is a privilege. And, yeah. you know, we all try to compare ourselves to everybody else. You don't know what's going on with somebody. You don't know if they have sick parents to take care yeah, of. Exactly. You don't know if they have, well, you might know if they have a family. Hopefully they talk about their family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like, oh, why is he, you know, how could he go back to school and do that? Yeah, it's because you didn't have kids, right? You didn't. 
you decide not to buy real estate. Exactly. You're living. You're making decent money because you decided to go back to school. Mm-hmm. You took a lot of chances, not necessarily really risky chances, but you went into debt, with a, which a lot of people are scared to do, mm-hmm. scared to grow. Mm-hmm. And you made the decision to grow, took a chance on yourself. The first one with the paramedic paid off. Mm-hmm. I mean, the theater one paid off. You just were not in a sustainable place because you, you, like you said, you were a success. Yeah, which is really—I I don't want to say sad, but it's—it's it's sad, isn't it? Is yeah, it, is that the right word? Well, it's true. Like when I like, I'll give you an example. Four years in, I had uh, I left Ryerson '94 and I worked '95, '96, '97 before I got a uh, more of a long ter- longer term gig. It was like several months at Shaw. This was—it was an entry level position. I was a—I was an assistant. Uh, my take home pay for living expenses for like getting through the day was seventy nine dollars a week. <laughs> $79 a week. $9 into savings. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And sure, $9 into savings. 70 to buy food. Buy food um, and have a beer every once in a while. That Yeah. That, it's just really unfortunate. So, you know, some a, might say uh, you're fine as a paramedic. Mm. Why would you take another risk? This was a purely living an interesting life decision. Okay, yes. No and longer financial. You were mo- no motivated longer financial. financially before, but now you feel like it is that uh, it's part of the Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, is you've got everything covered now. Yeah, you can think about what do I really want to do. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you're thinking now. Yeah, and 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 that's continued. And I, I, I made two decisions. One was first of all, I had never thought about going to med school prior to going to university, mm. and you know, there, people had made jokes about it. Oh, when are you going to be a doctor? I'm like, yeah, like I'm a paramedic. I like I did terribly in school. Like, look at my Ryerson marks; <laughs> yeah. they're embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I discovered that I had an affinity for education when I went back to school, only mm. as an adult. Okay. okay. Uh, only because I had the discipline of a ten-year career of theater and working independently and thinking. Different time of life. Yeah. It's just oh, you're God. a different person, right? Totally. And then I, it, you know, all like all you had to do was just do the work. Like at that point, yeah. I'm smart enough that did, uh, I had to do the work. And then I did well. And then <laughs> undergrad, all I got to do is do the work. It's that simple, right? Be interested in what you're doing and yeah. then just do the work and come up with a system to study. That is a huge thing I failed at when I was 20. Sure. I was having a, building an artistic practice, artisanal yeah. practice, but I wasn't building an academic practice. And now I had the luxury of being able and the, and the time to, to think about that and actually do it. So I, so I did well. And I got convinced by a friend of mine, Blair Bingham, who's now a fourth-year resident here in Hamilton in emergency medicine. And we worked together as paramedics. Okay. And uh, he was like, so when are you applying to med school? And I thought, okay, I'll apply as a lark. Like, really? like my marks are doing well. I have to write the MCAT. The only place I want to go is, is, is MAC. The only place I would go is MAC because it's a three-year program. And that extra year means a lot yeah. to somebody who's 40-something. Financially and, and also for time yeah. for you. I get out a year early. Like that year of earnings is really important to me. Interesting. You know, as a middle-aged man as opposed to 21-year-old, like, man, extra year. Who cares? Well, yeah, the right? loony doctor who was on the, uh, the podcast, he talked about the runway, that you have a short, shortened runway mm-hmm. when you go to med school and then residency and all that yeah. until you get to the actual doctor money. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and that you, your runway is even shorter yeah. because you started later than most. Yeah. Not later than everybody, no. but you know some people. Some people are twenty, as you know, yeah. in your class. Yeah, I know. You can you can make a whole <laughs> lot of mistakes, and it's not going to really make no. a difference in the long run, right? Me, I have to like be more prudent. But I become used to making those kind of risks, and without yeah. having any kind of without any kind of dependence, it was easy. I I want to say it's easy, but I 
I have exceedingly lucky. I left theater. I got into a program in the U.S. Every decision I made worked out. Mm. I left theater. I got a line of credit. Yeah, my folks had to co- co-sign it or uh, like guarantee it, but they did. And they had. I was lucky enough to have that they had that they were able to. That the bank was like, no, we can. Like they're they're fine to countersign that. So there's that luck there, or that privilege there. I applied to school. I got in in the U.S., which is not a, that big a deal. Like to get into a paramedic program in the U.S. is not very difficult, which is why I went down there. I couldn't get into one in, in Ontario because it was too much competition. Interesting. And so, but then I came back and I got equivalency. And within a two-year process, which is about how long it takes to become a paramedic in Ontario, I got hired at, at York Region EMS in Ontario. That job is a good-paying job. Like, it, there was no gap. There was no slogging of, like, will I get hired at this place or that place? I just got hired. What I'm seeing in your path, right, is you made, like, small moves to get to where you wanted to go. Yes. You took the... Like, the lesson here is people are like, I can never do that because I'll never get in. Well, here, how about this route B that you can take and then come back to A? Yeah. But for med school, you went for MAC. 5,000 plus people applying. Even six, yeah. 6,000 six, people is what I was saying. 500 told, yeah. and something are picked from those. Yeah. And then... How many from those? There's 200. So the, once you get an interview, the odds are pretty good. I just, I, I just have to be better than one or two other people. I mean, I want to agree with you because my wife got in, of course. Yeah. But also there's these forums that you've probably been on where a lot of people don't get in. A lot of people after it takes two three, or three times. Four, yeah. And some people yeah. never. And, and it yeah. is crushing. Yeah, absolutely. It's crushing for them. This yeah. is a difficult process. So, I mean, do you feel the lucky? Exceedingly lucky because I, I applied once and then I got in. That That is very lucky. Like, how very does lucky. that happen? Like, most people <laughs> in my class, I had to do a couple rounds. Yeah, I got in. Like, So uh, that's that's amazing. I don't know. Like, like and everything, every choice I've made, I only applied to write. Like, going back... I only applied to Ryerson to go to theater school. I got in there. Mm. I only applied to this place. Well, I applied to a couple places around paramedicine. I applied to a place in Ontario. And then I applied to this place in Iowa. And then I only uh, applied at U of T. And I got into U of T. And then I applied at Mac. And I got into Mac. Like, I don't It's. I don't know how. Like, I, I don't know how that happened other than hard work, perseverance, and maybe some sort of inherent talent, I guess. I don't <laughs> want to admit that because I don't see it, right? Well, you're obviously talented to be able to get into medical school yeah, sure. you know, right off the bat. Sure. Do you feel like you're thriving? You're in clerkship right now? Yeah. Which is the second part? Yeah, it's the practical portion of the MD3 or MD program. And so then do, uh, yeah. when do you, when do you uh, go into residency? Uh, in a year from now, I'll be an MD, so that's, uh, and then I'll be going to residency after that. How, mu- how many uh, years do you anticipate so, being a resident? So I, uh, I had originally wanted to go into a five-year residency to become an emergentologist, okay. uh, which is an emergency medicine specialist. Um, but after doing some emergency electives and, and working with other residents who make that choice, uh, and it's a great program. Like you, you become an expert. Uh, it is quite an extraordinary, sure. you know, five years. But uh, you know, by the fifth year, you're memorizing a lot of stuff that you're never going to see, and you're going to start to forget in about six months. Okay. So while you may be at the peak of your knowledge, that knowledge will start to that curve will start to bend. Okay. And you start to lose a lot of that knowledge because there's stuff that you never see in that career. So my plan now is to go back and become a rural family, do a rural family program. Fantastic. Two years of that, and then a plus one in emerge. Uh, which for me is now two years less than a five-year program to do basically the same job of emergency medicine. It won't necessarily have 
the same kind of academic career, although you can still have an academic career as a rural family doc if you want. Uh, and so three years residency. So three years in, in my medicine program, three years as a resident, and I'll be a staff doctor making the average salary. And people can probably do all the math uh, for the, the years that you've been doing all of this, but you know, how do you feel like looking at this? Do you feel like you're you know, finally where you want to be? Like This is about taking, taking chances on yourself, yeah. which for you have paid off. Uh-huh. It's about being like careful with your money, not getting into too much debt, but also taking on a reasonable amount of debt to move yourself forward, which, mm-hmm. again, people are scared of. Mm-hmm. It's about taking chances on yourself. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, like they have never felt risky to me because mm. I've only taken because I lived as a freelancer for ten years, and that's about as much risk as you, you started have. in the right place. Yeah, exactly. I made a commitment when I was going to do this. I thought if I'm going to go back to med school, I'm not going to live as a student again, because I did that quite uh, like leanly when I was leanly, yeah. If that's the word as a as a theater school student, um, and uh, I don't want to go back there. And I don't want to, you know, eat craft Dinner and Mr. Noodles and try to scrimp and yeah. save and yeah. try to get as little debt. And that might be the prudent thing to do um, because then, you know, the less debt you have, because medical school is quite expensive and you can get, and, you know, when you're not working full time, you can run up quite a huge amount of debt That's right. in just a few years living as my paramedic, you know, affluent self. That's right. Um, but I also thought... You know, I'm going to get through med school. I'm going to get through residency. I'm going to choose a job um, where I'm making, you know, s- plenty of six figures yeah. of money. Like the average f- physician salary is three hundred sixty thousand dollars or something in Canada, uh, which is an obscene amount of money from my past life, right? Yes. Even if you pay full taxes on that, I'm still taking home a hundred fifty thousand dollars or a hundred seventy thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. The hell does somebody do with one hundred seventy thousand dollars? You put it away and then you retire like, whenever you want. Yeah, exactly. That's, you get your financial independence, yeah. which is what you you know should already have. Yeah. If you had been in a different business, mm-hmm. being as frugal and successful as you have been, yeah. You know, it's taking chances on yourself and not being afraid to pivot, mm-hmm. because what happens is people are in their thing for ten years mm-hmm. and they're like, I do not know where to go, and mm-hmm. there are plenty of podcasts out there just about that topic yeah you know what if i'm sitting in a cubicle hating my life right and you didn't stay in the quote-unquote cubicle i was never in the cubicle you were actually literally never in the cubicle yeah yeah but you didn't stay trapped in your no future no retirement possibility zone yeah i I would never put up with that i like i this pivotal period of like the the 33 making a decision to leave theater yeah there's an inertia that happens once you get into your late 30s and early 40s and now you're in this career and now you're like, well, do I go back to school for four years? Do I upend my life? Now you maybe have kids yeah. and a spouse and all those things where you go, well, now like the risks are higher if I go like, what if I hate this? That's right. And I have friends who still work in theater. All it takes is another, is a Ford to be in charge of the federal government oh. and cut the guts out of the Canada Council. All of my friends will be unemployed. I don't know what they would do. That kind of uncertainty hangs over the heads of artists all over the world, let alone Canada, where we have at least the Canada Council. You know, we're no Germany or UK where they have a like a wonderful uh, arts program nationally. But even in the U.S., it's better than here, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. I could be wrong about that, but I believe like 
they have not as many cuts as the Canada Council and were better funded to begin with. And they have a better philanthropic establishment in the U.S. where it's important to give lots of money to the arts. Up here, there's a lot of where I have a younger population of millionaires here who don't see the payback of that kind of giving. And it's not it's not a direct payback. That's the no. thing. And so the, I guess the the conclusion is support the arts, please. Please support the arts. You know, not everyone's. Uh, I guess we will call you lucky because you're I'm lucky. I mean, you you are lucky in a way, but you also worked very very hard. Sure, we need to acknowledge that as well. And we need to acknowledge that you made uh, choices that a lot of people are afraid of. And so you don't have that fear. And, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, that, I like that. That's a good theme is like, you know, sometimes you just got to take a chance. You got to, uh, you can't just stay. Like, would you want to be miserable just staying, right? Mm-hmm. We got to mention your podcast. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> thank you. So I, uh, one of the things that I loved about theater and the thing that obviously I miss is the community. Mm-hmm. It's a shorter history of theater in Canada. Like, really, modern Canadian theater really started in the late 60s. Mm. There's a, it goes back back into the 20s. But, but in the late 60s, they came with the Canada Council in 1967. There was a whole bunch of grants that were instituted. And we built a modern Canadian storytelling apparatus of theater that was supposed to be different than the British tradition and our American colleagues to the South. And we started telling Canadian stories. The great thing about theater is this community that we've built because it's not huge and you know like the community is small enough that you know a lot of people and a lot of people know each other very well here. You can't really sit in obscurity in Canadian theater if you're working full-time in it because you get to know a lot of people from across the country. And I miss that. The second part of that is that there's nobody really collecting the history of theater in Canada. Okay. There are academic, obviously academics are doing it. Uh, people with academic careers who are collecting it, the, that theater history. But theater design specifically has been left out. Yeah. Uh, most of the history that's being collected is about the artists on the stage. Of course. Right? And theater design has a long has a long history. You know, from the late 60s when we started getting more money and building professional theater, design became an important part of that expression. And so I decided that I was going to try to capture some of that theater history. And my original thought was uh, we have this awards uh, in Toronto called the Herald Awards, which are like a alternative theater awards. And they, um, they're structured in a way that they have sort of an arc, a historical arc, where one person gives it to a second person who gives it to a third oh, okay. person, and they're all interrelated. And I thought, well, isn't that an interesting story to tell about Canadian sure. independent theater in Toronto? That was a huge network of people. There's a hundred and many, many hundred, like a couple hundred people who have now gotten that award, and it was difficult to get off the ground. But what I could do was talk to my friends about their own careers. Yeah. And so I started in uh, 2014. I started a podcast called The Title Block podcast which is a niche podcast if you're in amateur theater or professional theater you will appreciate it if you're not it's a lot of inside baseball okay um, but we talk about theater design about their uh, we talk I talk to theater designers about their own personal uh, their professional histories uh, and how they've interacted with Canadian theater in a historical context and they've been around since the late the early 50s then uh, which some of them have. It's a rich history of Canadian theater that they hold inside themselves. And so we draw those stories out, and then we talk about the craft of theater design in Canada as well. Nice. And you, you've done maybe over 50 episodes? There are. There? I think we're in the mid-50s. The number kind of got a bit off because I put it, there's a bunch of special events. But I've interviewed probably about 40 to 50 designers at this point. I have about 10 designers in the can right now ready to go out. From the senior, senior level artists to like the first 10 years kind of career 
artists as well. And we talk about uh, theater and design and, uh, and, and how they think and how they, their process and then how their lives have intersected with Canadian theater history. That's awesome. And that's yeah. what podcasting is about, right? Yeah. You can add that voice that is not, the niche is not there, exactly. right? In the podcasting world and that, oh, well, I want to talk about that. Yeah. And it's fantastic. So if you have any interest in theater, probably at all, you know, check it out. Yeah, the, it's so great. It's called The Title Block. Yeah, go to, to thetitleblock.com is the website. We're on Apple, iTunes, and Play. All the, all the places. All where the you places. can find this podcast, you can find. Exactly. And we're both on Patreon as well. Yes. So that, there you go. You yes. can check us out. I have a meager yeah, Patreon. Give us a dollar uh, an episode or That'd something. That'd be great, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for coming to the studio. Thanks for coming on the show and telling your story. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that was episode 80 with Michael Cruz. If this was your first time tuning in, you should check out my 75th episode where I have one-minute segments for each of the 74 episodes that came before it. It's a quick way to find an episode that you might be interested in without listening to hours and hours of the show. If you're a regular listener, thanks so much for downloading the episodes every week. Another way that you can support the podcast is by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. The link is at the end of the show notes of most podcast apps. Otherwise, just head to patreon.com slash it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I also have a Facebook group for the podcast. Head over to Facebook and search for The Personal Finance Show to join that group. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with finance writer, speaker, and tax specialist Janine Rogan. <laughs>